I'm really looking forward to this today. Hebrews chapter 10, we'll be reading from that in a little moment. Good. So, Gail and I got married. Um, <laughs> there we are. The passage of time. Eh? We got married on the 10th of July in 1993, so tomorrow is our 30th wedding anniversary, and I've been thinking about it quite a lot. Yeah. Um, and back then, I found the thought of being married really, really um, frightening, to be honest. Now I can't imagine life without it, but I was, I was pretty frightened about being uh, married. In fact, when I proposed to Gail, um, because I was so afraid, she didn't actually, she wasn't absolutely sure that I'd proposed to her, so afterwards she <laughs> said to me, was that actually a proposal? Yeah. Um, and I had to clarify and say, yes, that, that was a, a proposal. Um, and the reason why I was so um, afraid of it was that I, I knew that Gail was going to get to know the real me. That, that was a scary thing. You know, when you're dating and when you're going out, um, you, can, you can put on a face, you can put on a mask, you can paper over the cracks. Um, the next slide. Yeah. <laughs> so enraptured with what I'm saying. <laughs> you can paper over the, the cracks, can't you, when, you, when you're still dating. Um, even people that we know at church, we can paper over the cracks, we can pretend to be someone that we aren't. But when you get married, now you're with that person 24-7 for the rest of your life. And I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to keep up this, this really perfect good guy image forever. Eventually, she was going to hear me swear, she was going to see me sleeping through my quiet time, um, and probably worse things than that. And so, I just knew that there was going to be no pretense. And sure enough, it didn't actually take long for Gail to start seeing the real me. Um, and because of an experience that we had uh, on the first day of our honeymoon, this, this became um, quite a big issue in some ways. So let me tell you about it. We spent a few days um, at Pine Tree Inn in Unyanga, and when we arrived, Gail was busy unpacking her toiletries in the bathroom. She called me to bring my shaving gear to put into the, into the cupboard there, and as we were standing there, we suddenly heard the couple next door come in and start talking and having a conversation. We could hear every word. Just be aware of that if you ever go to the Pine Tree Inn. <laughs> just, just close the door of the toilet or the bathroom. Anyway, but, but there was conversation going on, and actually it wasn't really a conversation because most of it was the guy talking, and he was just whinging and whining and complaining, wasn't he, Gail? It's just like, I can't, this room is pathetic, we don't like, I don't like the view, look at the size of the bed, we were told that we were going to have a shower, there's no shower here, there's only a, a, um, a bath, <laughs> we were just like, we formed this mental image of this couple and what they looked like, uh, and we imagined this big sort of domineering man and a little sort of hen-pecked wife, um, and we couldn't wait to see what they were going to actually look like. So sure enough, later on that evening, we, we headed down to the, to the restaurant. And uh, next thing, this, this couple came walking in, and there was this tall, 
handsome, presidential-looking woman who came walking in, followed by this little <laughs> diminutive, hand-packed guy. And uh, we just we, we couldn't believe our eyes um, because the picture that we'd formed of their interaction in, in private was completely different to the way that they looked in public. Anyway, a few days later, we drove to Matari uh, to do some grocery shopping because we were due to stay in the self-catering cottage up in the Bumba. And in the crush of Matari, just getting hassled by street kids, by vendors, a teller that didn't work terribly well, Gail saw a side of me that she had never seen before. Before then, I'd, I'd managed to con her into thinking that I was this polite, well-mannered, charming, lovely fellow. But she saw something completely different. And she was quite concerned because she was just like, is this, is this what I'm going to have to live with? Am I, am I going to be like this couple that we saw at Pine Tree Inn, where what happens in private is completely different to what happens in public? And of course, I'm telling you the story because we need to ask the question, because we all do it, is why do we pretend to be better than we actually are? Why do we have to be better than other people? Why do, we, why do we need to compare ourselves in a favorable light with other people? Why do we paper over the cracks? Why is that prospect of being real, and even to our inner circle, I mean, we're talking about my wife here, why is it so frightening? And folks, I think it's the fear that if we show our real selves, we'll be rejected, and that we'll no longer be loved and valued. But that raises the question, and I think it's true that every one of us wants to be loved. Every one of us wants to be valued. We want to have a purpose in life that gives us significance. But, but why do we have it? Why do we have that des those desperate needs? And the Bible teaches us that every human was created with those needs. We were created with a need to be loved and valued. It's part of what it means to be human. I mean, you can look at children, they've done all these experiments about babies that have been cuddled and loved and those that haven't, and the ones that haven't just don't thrive. It's because we, we have this basic need to be loved and to be valued. But God intended for him to be the ultimate source of that love and that value and that self-worth. So he defined what we need, he created us in a certain way, and he intended himself to be the supplier of those needs, to be loved and valued by God, to be given a purpose by God. And if we get those things from Him, then we actually receive life from God. Life is not the same. It's not fullness of life when we don't get these things from God. And that's why we have such a desperate need to be loved and valued. But there's a problem. Every human being has said to God, whether it's in words or in actions, and even if it was only once, but of course we do it so many more times, we've said to him, I want to be in charge. I want to decide for myself what is right and wrong, and I don't want you hanging around whilst I do my own thing. We've all rebelled, and we've all said that we don't want God's presence. And the problem with that, folks, is that in rejecting God's presence, it made it possible for all the terrible things that we see in the world around us to come in. Suffering, evil, death, slavery, rape, 
theft, murder, all of these things. They're all brought into the world as a result of our rejection of God and our rebellion of God. And so, in our small way, each one of us is responsible for the suffering and evil and death that we see in the world. And since we're responsible and since we've wronged God in that way, we can no longer relate to God in such a way that He can supply the love and the value and the purpose that we so desperately need. Think of it in terms of a close relationship that you have uh, with someone. I'm thinking of Gail. If, if I treat Gail badly, if I say, I, I, I don't care what you think, I don't care what you feel and act in a certain way, which is what we've done to God, the relationship starts to break down. And I'm no longer in right standing with Gail. I can no longer um, enjoy a reciprocal relationship with her where I'm giving and receiving love. And that's exactly what's happened to God. So we're in a really bad state, folks. Because unless God does something about it, our relationship with Him is broken down and we can't receive the very life that we so desperately need, the love, the worth, and the purpose and the significance. So how, how is this problem overcome? What needs to happen so that we can draw near to God again and receive life from Him? Have a look at verse 1. It'll be up on the, on the slide. Can you see the implication there? It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. We want to draw near to God, but if we want to draw near to God, we need to be made perfect. What does he mean with, by that? And all the commentators are in agreement on this. What he's saying is that we, ne we need to be made right with God. If I've offended Gail, something needs to happen for me to be restored to right relationship with Gail. And if we're not made perfect, then we can't be in relationship with God. We can't receive the love and the value and the significance that we so desperately need. Can you see how important it is for us to be put right with God, to be made perfect? But how? Today, in today's passage, we're going to look at what doesn't work, I think the slide will be up there, what does work, and a comparison of both. So let me just read the whole passage so that you get the flow of it. And we'll be able to see how this applies to our day-to-day -day life as we go on. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, Make perfect those who draw near. Implication there, that if we want to draw near, we need to be made perfect, put into right relationship with God. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And what we're going to learn today is that even though we might not be using that Old Testament system to be put right with God, that we all devise our own strategies and we can transfer principles and, and, and see how futile it is for us to use our own strategies to try and be put right with God. 
He says here, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. This is God, Jesus speaking. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he had said the above, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily as his, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting, waiting from right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies uh, should be put made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's see if we can make sense of that, and especially in terms that we can understand today. So first of all, looking at what doesn't work. That's in verses 1 to 4. So the author is writing to Jewish Christians who were tempted to use the old agreement, the old covenant, to be put right with God. To enter into that old agreement or covenant with God actually required people to follow the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. But the law, can you see there what it says? The law says that, it was a sh that the law was a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And so as Trevor explained it, the old covenant was designed to point people to the new covenant so that they would embrace the new covenant when God presented it. The old covenant was designed to, wasn't designed to make perfect those who draw near. And yet to be put right with God is what every human being needs because when we aren't right with God, we can't get the love and the worth and the significance that only he could supply. So he's reminding the Jewish Christians at that time, don't look to the old covenant to be put right with God because that's just papering over the cracks. It was never designed to solve the problem. It was designed to point you to the new covenants, so when that time comes, when it's revealed, you will embrace it. Now, just think about yourself for a moment. Don't you find that often you're motivated by a desire to be loved or to find worth or to find significance? In life. And this is evidence, isn't it, that what the Bible teaches is true. We use all sorts of strategies 
to get these things. And so when I initially was dating Gail, there was an element of what I was doing which was self-serving because I had a need for love and I was looking for Gail to supply that need for love. And I was also acting in such a way as to paper over the cracks and trying to be better than I actually was so that I would get that love from her. But how would it be, folks, if I knew that I was loved? If I was put into right relationship with God? Then I wouldn't be so desperate. Then my relationship with Gail wouldn't be self-serving, would it? Mercenary in its aspect, where I'm looking to her to supply something to me. Folks, whatever the strategy is, whether you do it through your work to prove that you're a person of significance, whether it's the car that you drive or the motorbike that you ride, none of these things are going to supply our ultimate need for love and self-worth because they come from God. That's the heart of the problem. We need to be put right with God so that we can receive those things from God. And isn't it interesting, folks, if a system that God himself gave us wasn't able to make people perfect because its intention was to point towards something that would, but if a system that comes from God can't put us, make us perfect, how much more so or less so can strategies that we devise for ourselves that try and make us feel loved and worthy and significant? And that's what the writer is getting at in verse 2. He says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. The thing is, folks, that, that no strategy is going to cleanse us once and for all. If it did, then we would no longer have the consciousness of sins. We'd be delivered from this deep, nagging sense of guilt that we don't measure up. And of course, when we're turning to our own strategies, we live with that. We're constantly realizing it, it dawns on us that, oh my word, I'm, I'm looking for love here, I'm looking for value here, but I'm having to do this over and ag over again, and it's not working. We just repeat the same strategies over and over, just as the Jews did when they were giving their sacrifices. And all those sacrifices served to do was to remind them that the burden on their consciences that they didn't measure up hadn't been taken away. Just take the example of Madonna. I've, know, I've used this example before. She says, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. She, doesn't want to, she wants to be a person of worth. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. That's what he's, what he's talking about in verse 3 and 4 there. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Every time she sacrificed her time and her energy to try and prove that she was someone of worth, it just reminded her that actually she wasn't. There was something missing. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that phrase, take away sins, is used elsewhere in Hebrews. He's referring to removing the burden that our rebellion against God has placed 
on our consciences. That's what we need. I hope you can see two things here. First of all, that every human being has a serious problem. We need to be made perfect. We need to be put into right relationship with God. We need to be cleansed once and for all for our sins, past, present, and future. We need our sins to be taken away for the burden that sin places on our conscience to be removed. And then the second thing we need to know is that the old covenant and any strategy that we devise is not going to work. To try and earn something from God, to try and prove ourselves to God, it's not going to work. So what does work? Let's have a look at verses 5 to 8. Verse 5 begins, Consequently, when Christ came into the world. So, what he's saying here is, as a consequence of the fact that the old system didn't work and nothing else will actually work, as a consequence of that, what happened? Christ came into the world. He's coming to sort out the problem. Two things. First of all, that phrase, come into the world, it's used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to the incarnation. In other words, to refer to Jesus coming as God but becoming a human being. So it's key for us to know that for this problem to be solved, Jesus needs to come into the world as a human being. And then the second thing is that Christ is about to speak. So consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said. What, is, what does Christ say? Well, the writer gives a quote in the next verse from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. And I just think it's significant, isn't it? that he's quoting from the Old Testament, but he's saying that Christ said it. So in some way, the Lord Jesus was involved in the writing of the Old Testament. Now, what is the significance of these words? So what Jesus says, he quotes from Psalm 40, verse 6 to 8, and then in verse 8, he starts to explain what it is that Jesus has said. When he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So the sacrifices and the offerings offered according to the law were preparing the Jewish people to accept the sacrifice of Christ's body, Christ becoming man. But often, they saw them as a way of papering over the cracks in their lives in order to make it seem like everything was okay. Because it's possible, isn't it, to offer sacrifices and to go through a religious system and make it seem like to everybody around you that everything's okay. And we do it. Even today we do it. We come to church. We go to life group. We, if we look into those things to sort out the problem, they won't. It's just window dressing. It's just paper over the crack. What actually needs to happen is the whole wall needs to be demolished, the foundation re-dug and built, and then a new wall constructed. Jesus said in verse 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. Well, what was God's will? We find the answer in verse 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
What was the will? It was God's will for Jesus to offer his body as a sacrifice. What was the result? We have been sanctified. It's interesting. In the Greek language, the, the tense of the verb that is used there is used to refer to something that happened in the past, but that has ongoing consequences for all time. So we were sanctified when Jesus offered his body to die on the cross. At that moment, something happened which has implications for us even today. The offering of the body of Christ, which happened once 2,000 years ago, means that you have been made holy once and for all time. So let's have a look now at what does work. Well, we would be looking at what does work. And plain and simple, it's the sacrifice of Christ's body. That's where it begins. That's where it ends. That's how we can be put into right relationship with God. All these other systems, all these other sacrifices, all these other things that we do, they can't put us into right standing with God. So let's move on now and just have a look at how well Christ's sacrifice actually works. So what we're going to do is have a look in verses 11 to 14 and just see the contrast between the two systems. So verse 11 is up there. It starts off and he says that every priest stands. But then when he talks about Jesus, he said he sat down. What's the significance of that? I heard someone saying it. The work was complete. So if you're standing, it means you've still got work to do. But if you have sat down, then it means the work is completed. What did Jesus say when he was on the cross? It is finished. I've done it. I've completed it. That one sacrifice, once for all, is going to have an impact on humanity for the rest of time. He sat down. But look at where he sat down. The priests were standing in a copy of what was going on in heaven to point us to what's going on in heaven. But Jesus is actually there. He sat down where? At the right hand of God. So God has recognized that his sacrifice did the job because he's given him this position of authority in heaven. That's a position of infinite authority to be at the right hand of the Father. So that's the first difference. It's completed. It's, it's finished. We don't need to turn to these strategies anymore. I don't need to, to, to be loved by Gail. Um, and sometimes if she doesn't love me perfectly, that's okay. I'm still there to love her because I know that I don't love her perfectly. And both of us are looking to God to supply that need. And the reason why it can be supplied to us is because we put into right standing with God. And whatever it is, whatever strategy it is that you use, that strategy is going to break down. It's not going to work. It's going to remind you. It's going to point you back to the truth. I have been put in right standing with God, or I need to be put into right standing with God. Right. Second difference. Every priest stands daily. This is something that doesn't end. Every day, they stood up there and they made the sacrifices. But when Christ came, he was offered for all time a single sacrifice 
for sins. Third comparison. The Old Testament sacrifices were offered repeatedly. Can you see that in verse 11? And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Whereas Christ is a single sacrifice for sins. And then the last one. The old sacrifices could never take away sins. Do you see it there at the end of verse 11? Could never take away sins. But because of what Christ has done for us, we have been perfected for all time. And once again, it's in that special tense that's referring to one event that happened, but which has an impact for all time. Folks, that's all it took, was for Jesus to die for us, that perfect sacrifice for our sins. And if we will put our faith and our trust in Him, then we don't need to be looking to anything else to provide us with love. And sure enough, I mean, God has set things up in such a way that we do get love from other people. But we are also set free to love others maybe who don't love us, or people who don't love us perfectly. Because suddenly there isn't so much hanging on it. <laughs> you know, if, if my need for love is only hanging on Gail, what an unfair thing to put onto her. I get my love from, from God, and then it means I can love her perfectly. She does the same thing. Oh, not perfectly, but I can love her as best, I, <laughs> as best I can. So when you look at those four differences, you know, there's just no comparison. But there's more. Remember we heard earlier that Christ said something, so we had the witness of Christ. Well, now we hear from the witness of the Holy Spirit in verse 15. He says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after these days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them in their minds. This is an amazing agreement that we enter into with God. He actually changes our hearts and our minds. The heart is the seat of our motivation and our will. Jesus can actually work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That's what he said in Philippians chapter 2. The change is happening on the inside. It's not cosmetic. It's not papering over the cracks. It's knocking down the wall. It's reestablishing the foundation and it's building it back up. That's why the Bible talks about a rebirth. It talks about a new creation. This is what God does for us. The prophet Ezekiel said these words. He says, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. This Holy Spirit who does it. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Now we can see why it's the spirit that's doing these things. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We have that change of heart. We have that indwelling Holy Spirit. And then the last part of the Holy Spirit's testimony is in verses 17 and 18, where he says, Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Does this mean, folks, if God has forgotten our sins, that he's got a short memory? He's omniscient. He knows everything, doesn't he? So it can't mean 
that he has a short memory. We saw earlier in Hebrews 8, chapter 12, a full quotation of what he quotes here. And the full quotation is, I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Can you just go to the next slide? Oh, I didn't put it up. Okay. So there's a parallel there. He says, I will be merciful, and I will remember their sins no more. So remembering their sins no more or forgetting their sins is parallel to being merciful. So what God is saying here is that he's not, he's not going to forget our sins, sins in the sense that he can't remember them. He's going to forget them in the sense that he will forgive us for them. He won't count them against us anymore. So that they won't come as a barrier between us and God. So folks, my encouragement um, to you today is just to be reminded of this fact. You have a desperate need for love. You have a desperate need for worth and for purpose and significance in life. And you will only get those things if you are in right relationship with God because that's how God created it. He created it so that He would be the ultimate source of those things that we could find those things in Him. And how do we get put right with God? How do we get put into right standing with God? It's through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross, that ultimate sacrifice that every other sacrifice was pointing towards. You see, when you sacrifice yourself to get love, to try and earn love from other people, to try and earn love from God, that sacrifice is ineffective. It doesn't work. The only sacrifice that works is what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. Remember when Ian Wilshire was preaching about those emotions that we feel? He talked about anxiety. He talked about anger. And he said, when you feel those emotions of anger and anxiety, try and figure out what need you were trying to have met that gave rise to those feelings of anxiety or of anger. And so... For example, with, with my example with Gail, I was feeling anxious about getting married. Why was I feeling anxious? Well, it was because I was trying to get my need for love met in Gail. That's why I was feeling anxious. If you feel overburdened going to work every week, every day, because you're having to prove that you're a person of worth, aren't you going to feel anxiety? Aren't you going to feel depression after a time? when you realize that this strategy is just not working, wouldn't it be so much better to turn back to God and just say, if you have already put your faith and your trust in Him, turn back to Him and say, no, reminder to self, <laughs> I don't need to try and earn my love from other people because I'm loved by God. And if I'm trying to earn love from other people, everything that I'm doing is motivated by, by selfishness because I'm trying to get something from them for me. But I can be set free from that. I don't have to be like that. I, I can know that God loves me because of what Christ did on the cross. And then everything that I'm doing for them is for the right motive. I'm doing it out of love for God. This is what God wants from us. You know, He doesn't want us to be papering over the cracks and following some sort of system that makes us look good in public because we can't hide anything from God. 
And I couldn't hide anything from Gail, but I mean, how much more so <laughs> can I not hide anything from God? And it's the same for you. So I would constantly be in the process. I have to do this all the time. Remind myself of, the, of this, that God is my source of love. God is my source of significance. God is my source of self-worth. Don't try and earn it through any other sacrifice. Just turn to what Jesus did. And then if you are listening to what I'm saying today and you're thinking, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever had myself put right with God. This righteousness that the writer to Hebrews is talking about. Then you can be put right with God. You can put your faith and your trust in what Jesus has done on the cross. You can believe that he died in your place so that you don't have to die. So that you can be put right with God. Shall we pray? Father, I pray for every person here who has already put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just amazing, Father God, how we can carry on living as though, as though that isn't a reality in our lives and um, be trying to prove ourselves and, and work so hard. And, and Father, I, I, I just thank you for this reminder today. And we need to turn t to you as our source of love um, and we can because of what Jesus did on the cross. Just help us every day of this week um, to be aware when we're tripping over into that, that system of, of papering over the cracks and, and not really getting to the heart of the issue. Um, and Father, for, for those who, who haven't turned to you and put their faith in you, um, if you would just like to pray along with me quietly in your heart, you can... You can put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus right now. Lord Jesus, I accept that I'm not in right standing with God. I've, I've rebelled against you, Father God, and I accept that. But I want to be put into right standing with you. And I know the only way I can do that is by putting my faith and my trust in the work of Jesus Christ. I believe he was your son. I believe he came as a human being. I believe he died on the cross in my place. I believe that he was raised to new life so that I can be raised to new life as well. I put my faith and my trust in you this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.